Lecture Notes, Utilitarianism, Mill. Another major utilitarian in the history of Western philosophy was John Stuart Mill, more often known as J.S. Mill. Side note, many students accidentally refer to him as Mills, adding an S to the end of his name, but it's just plain Mill. Mill lived from 1806 to 1873, so a little bit later than Bentham. He read Bentham's work on ethics and was clearly influenced by Bentham and attracted to this new theory of utilitarianism. Mill's principle summarizing utilitarianism is known as the, quote, greatest happiness principle, which holds that actions are right in proportion as they tend to promote happiness, wrong as they tend to produce the reverse of happiness, by happiness is intended pleasure and the absence of pain, by unhappiness, pain, end quote. And this is from Mill's work on utilitarianism. In other words, this quote is saying an action is right in as much as it tends to bring about happiness or pleasure, and it's wrong in as much as it tends to bring about pain or suffering. However, unlike Bentham, Mill was keen to distinguish between types of pleasures, and in particular, he wanted to differentiate high and low pleasures. Remember from the previous lecture notes that Bentham says the only thing that matters is the quantity of pleasure. Quality doesn't matter. However, Mill took a very different view and famously wrote that it is, quote, better to be Socrates dissatisfied than a pig satisfied, end quote. And again, that's from uh, utilitarianism. Let's unpack this. As you know by now, within the Western philosophical tradition, Socrates is revered as the founding father of philosophy, and certainly most Western philosophers hold him up as this ideal of rationality. So Mill is saying that it would be better to be a rational, intellectual, and enlightened Socrates and be unhappy than to be a pig, a mere animal, and be happy. In concrete terms, it's as if Mill is saying that it would be better to be a human being who appreciates fine, elevated human pleasures than it is to be an animal who goes in for lower pleasures. In particular, the key for Mill is that high pleasures engage our, quote, higher faculties, and faculties just means like capacities. Roughly, this means our reason. It's actually, it's pretty hard to pin down what the details of what Mill means by this. Um, but since this is an intro class, we don't have to worry too much about the exact details and can stick with a basic version of the distinction between high and low pleasures. Let's uh, consider a few examples. And note for the purposes of these examples, I'm going to imagine that we could measure the amount of pleasure someone experiences. Probably this isn't possible for a variety of reasons, but for the sake of argument, let's pretend it's possible to quantify how much pleasure a person has in some kind of units. Okay, so example one. Imagine two people who experience the exact same amount of pleasure. One gets the pleasure from eating cheese Whiz straight from the jar. The other gets the pleasure from sampling different cheeses, carefully made and aged by an expert cheesemaker, and pleasure from talking to the cheesemaker about their process so they can appreciate the differences among the kinds of cheese. Mill would probably say that the latter kind of pleasure, the second one, is higher because it engages our higher faculties, and so it's the better kind of pleasure. Bentham would say the pleasures are equal because the amount of pleasure is equal. Okay, example two. 
Imagine two people who experience, again, the exact same amount of pleasure. One gets the pleasure from a satisfying sexual relationship with their beloved spouse, a person they've like known and appreciated for many years. The other gets the pleasure from hooking up with strangers. Mill would say that a relationship with one's spouse is the higher pleasure because this relationship offers possibility for more engagement of our uniquely human capacities, whereas the other relationships are more purely physical and thus more, quote, animal. Bentham again would say that the pleasures are equal so long as the amount of pleasure is equal. I think most people can appreciate the pull of both Bentham and Mill's views here. On the one hand, Mill's idea of, quote, higher pleasures and the importance of, quote, engaging our unique human capacities like reason can make him seem like a total elitist snob. <laughs> this might make us sympathetic to Bentham. After all, pleasure is pleasure, right? But on the other hand, many people do find it intuitive that pleasures engaging our whole personhood are better or higher than pleasures that are purely, quote, physical. For example, and I'm speaking for myself, although there's something fun about spending a day on the couch, eating snacks and watching TV, it, there's also something kind of empty or hollow about this. If I, if I spend the day doing something that involves my mind as well as my body, and especially if it lets me connect with other human beings, that pleasure seems better and more wholesome in some respect. Mill's political philosophy. Utilitarianism is a moral or ethical theory about how we should act. However, utilitarianism also has applications to political philosophy, and Mill was a pretty significant figure in the history of Western political philosophy. One of Mill's most important works is On Liberty, a defense of the liberty of the individual with regard to the state's authority. No surprise, when it comes to political philosophy, we see some of the same themes of utilitarianism we've already been talking about in these lecture notes and the earlier ones, an emphasis on good outcomes, good consequences, and happiness. More specifically, one of the main claims Mill considers in On Liberty is that a government should be restricted when it comes to the freedom of individuals, and in particular, freedom of speech and freedom of action. When it comes to free speech, Mill argues that suppressing free speech is generally harmful, i.e. it promotes bad consequences and thus is wrong according to utilitarianism. Why? For three main reasons. Reason one, sometimes unpopular minority opinions are true. Think back to learning about Galileo and the Copernican revolution. Although unpopular at the time, Galileo's views turned out to be true. Thus, one reason to allow free speech is that strictly regulating speech may prevent the truth from coming out. Okay, reason two. Of course, not all unpopular opinions are true. Many unpopular opinions are false. In this case, however, Mill thinks that it's still better to let the unpopular false opinions be aired openly so that we can reveal the errors openly. This kind of justification for free speech is probably familiar to you all. We sometimes say things like, well, sure, that's a Nazi view and it's horrible, but we should still let those people express their views, even if they're horrible. And besides, then it'll be 
out in the open for everyone to see how horrible they are. Furthermore, reason three, unpopular and false opinions can promote intellectual growth. Let's say you believe the truth, you've got the truth, but someone else is loudly defending a false view. Having to debate with this person and defend the truth can help you clarify your reasons for believing as you do and generally promote intellectual exchange that's beneficial to all. Debate with others keeps us fresh and engaged. Bill doesn't think that governments should never regulate speech, however. He thinks it's appropriate for the government to regulate our speech when our speech is causing harm. It's very utilitarian of him. (laughs) He doesn't think there's an absolute prohibition on government regulation of speech, but he thinks it's okay for governments to intervene when the consequences of free speech start to cause more harm than good. The example he gives is of slandering the corn dealers, of saying that they're starving the poor. To put it in more modern terms, imagine instead we're criticizing a grocery store chain for the high price of food. Mill thinks it would be totally permissible to publish this opinion in a newspaper or tweet about it on Twitter, uh, but that the government should intervene if we try to yell this opinion through a bullhorn to an angry mob in front of the grocery store chain's headquarters. The latter, of course, might be a form of inciting a riot, which is a form of harm. Mill's defense of freedom of action might be a little more surprising. After all, people are very often wrong about what's in their own interest, and many utilitarians endorse paternalism in light of this. Uh, Paternalism is the view that it's permissible to interfere with or override someone's choices when interfering or overriding will promote their well-being. Okay, so why does Mill think it's important to protect freedom of action? Mill has a deep conviction that, generally speaking, individuals are the best judges of their own interests and are not normally the best judges of others' interests. And if Mill is right about this, then it makes sense that he would defend my freedom to act as I please and your freedom to act as you please, since that would maximize happiness for everyone. However, Mill thinks there are some important caveats here. One, Mill excludes children from this principle of freedom of action on the grounds that they don't have enough experience or maturity to make good decisions. So Mill is not saying that six-year-olds should be granted the right to act exactly as they please. Two, Mill thinks we can infringe on freedom of action in order to prevent harm. I may say that it's like my freedom to drive as fast as I please through a neighborhood, but Mill says, well, the government would be right to intervene in my freedom in this case because driving recklessly, when I drive recklessly around a neighborhood, I endanger the lives and property of my neighbors. However, Mill does argue that the government should stop regulating behavior that doesn't harm anyone. So for example, he thinks like consensual sex sex work, recreational drug use, nonviolent drunkenness, gambling, etc., that these things should be perfectly legal because they don't cause harm to others. Mill on political equality. On Liberty was written a decade before another work of political philosophy, The Subjugation of Women. Mill wrote The Subjugation of Women in 1869, just after the American Civil War. 
This date is important to note because at the end of the American Civil War, 1865, the general thought in America was that this modern concept of universal emancipation would prevail. Mill believed that human character is the product of its environment and upbringing. This made him suspicious of the then common, and still common, belief that women and men are essentially different. If men and women are born essentially different, with essentially different capacities and natures, then it's very easy to justify giving men and women different roles within the family and society. Mill also applies this same logic to racial differences, arguing that any differences we observe between racial groups are not biological or inherent, but rather the result of environment, which led him to reject the idea that one racial group should have authority over another. Thus, Mill argues that disenfranchised groups, in other words, groups lacking political representation, so at his time that meant women and racial minorities, should be given equal rights of political participation. Here, too, Mill appeals to his utilitarianism, arguing that denying the vote to these groups was harmful to them. In particular, two reasons. One, as discussed above, Mill holds that the individual is the best judge of what's best for them. But this means that if we deny certain groups votes or the right to vote, then they are unable to give political voice to their interests and defend their own interests. Reason two, Mill also thinks that the right to vote and participate in a political community is itself valuable and worthwhile, part of a good and happy life. Thus, we doubly harm disenfranchised groups by denying them the right to vote. They're unable to advocate for their own unique interests among political leadership, and they can't have the pleasure of participation in a political community. I will leave you with a portrait of Harriet Taylor Mill, J.S. Mill's wife and intellectual partner. And the portrait is present in the lecture notes on Canvas, briefly describing it. It's a sort of um, oil painting of a woman wearing like a yellow dress. And she, you know, as is normal in her time, has like dark brown hair with sort of curls framing her face and like a bun out of the top of her head and a kind of like sunsetty picture in the background. Harriet Taylor Mill and J.S. Mill collaborated on the intellectual works published under Mill's name, although the extent of Harriet Taylor Mill's influence on the works published in J.S. Mill's name is hotly debated by scholars. Mill wrote, quote, Not only during the years of our married life, but during many years of confidential friendship which preceded it, all of my published writings were as much my wife's work as mine her share in them constantly increasing as years advanced. Thus, although I've just been speaking of J.S. Mill throughout the lecture notes thus far, arguably I maybe should have been writing about Mill and Mill the entire time, since we have some reason to think that Mill and Mill collaborated on their intellectual work, at least minimally and perhaps extensively. <laughs>